This month is a special one. Thanksgiving is a national holiday for some. We celebrate this by gathering together and consuming food while talking about the things we are thankful for. That holiday is what makes this month so special. Every day this month, we will be talking about somebody who is hungry for somebody else's flesh. The first episode is that of Peckish Pete. Welcome to episode one in our Thanksgiving special, Furious Feasters. Hey guys, and welcome back to my podcast. I'm your host, Lulu, and it's great to talk to everybody again. I missed you guys, and I'm so excited about this month's series of episodes we are doing for our Sunday uploads. If you didn't kind of get from the beginning, um, I do celebrate Thanksgiving where I am from. I know not everybody, you know, does. But I thought it was the perfect time to do something fun, especially for those of us who also celebrate Thanksgiving, to do something creepy-like, but on a spin of Thanksgiving. As you heard at the beginning, if you don't really celebrate Thanksgiving or know what it is, it's a time where we like to gather and talk about what we're thankful for. We eat a lot of food most of the time. Thanksgiving Day is a national holiday, and normally it's used to celebrate the harvest and other blessings of, like, you know, the past year, like what we're thankful for. To make it more podcasty, I thought we celebrate and eat together. Let's talk about cannibals. <laughs> Maybe that's not a great way to think of that, but I thought it'd be so fun to do a Furious Feasters. And to talk about some cannibals, some of them you might know, some of them you might not know, and kind of talk about that for Thanksgiving month, for November. So I'm super excited to talk about these with you guys. It's going to be so much fun. And like I said, this is episode one of Furious Feasters, which is called Peckish Pete. This is a nickname that this man would go on to get. Um, I am just going to refer to him as his name, Peter. But really, after he was found guilty, he gained the name Peckish Pete. Now, Peckish Pete, his real name, as I said, was Peter Bryan. He was born on October 4th, 1969, and he would have seven older brothers who would grow up with him. Peter would attend Shaftesbury Junior School, I think is how it's said, Anyways, this was the junior high school that was mentioned a lot that he attended before he would move to his secondary school. The reason that they kind of talked about his schooling in a lot of my resources is because he only attended school for a short period of time because at the age of 14 years old, Pete would drop out of school and go and get a job. We know back then that this was, you know, common. A lot of people ended up dropping out of school and going and getting a job. I couldn't find a specific reason as to why Pete dropped out of school to get a job, but I'm going to be honest, you guys, it was probably to help support his family. They probably needed a little bit of money. Now, this job that Pete would go and get would consist of him selling clothing. And later down the line, when he got bored of that, he would begin to look at the local soup kitchen and he would leave the job selling clothing and go and work at the soup kitchen to make money there. 
For a while, this is how Pete lived, until early on in his life, he began to show some concerning signs. Now, I don't know how early he started to show these signs, but he started showing signs of schizophrenia. Now, normally, schizophrenia will begin to show up in people in their mid to late 20s, Um, There has been cases where it's happened early 20s and gone even past mid-30s. But most of the time, somebody is not born with schizophrenia. It sounds like the youngest child to get schizophrenia was 13 years old, which is extremely rare. And you can imagine how hard it was to actually diagnose that because most of the time we see it in, you know, 25-ish year old men and women. Early onset schizophrenia starts normally at the age of 18. So it's entirely possible that he was 18 when this started, but he could have been as young as 13. I could not find an age that he started to show these symptoms. Now, if you don't know what schizophrenia is, it is a brain disorder that causes, well, can cause delusions, hallucination, disorganized speech, trouble with doing things and having motivation to do anything. Somebody with schizophrenia can be dangerous if untreated because you never know what these thoughts and delusions and hallucinations are doing to that person. So for example, somebody could go from completely and totally normal to the next day suddenly seeing monsters that are attacking them or things or people or God telling them to kill somebody. I want to put in a note here that not everybody with schizophrenia is dangerous though. Oftentimes, especially in the true crime community, we kind of get this messed up way that we think of some mental disorders and schizophrenia is a big one. A lot of people seem to think if you get diagnosed with schizophrenia or meet somebody with schizophrenia that you are in danger. That is not the case. Sometimes these hallucinations can be as simple as having a boyfriend that's not a real person. Not all the time are you seeing monsters or things that are telling you to kill people. Those are the types of people we hear about because they act on these hallucinations. Not everybody with schizophrenia is going to be dangerous. In fact, most people with schizophrenia are not going to be dangerous. And by the time somebody gets diagnosed and then treated for schizophrenia, even though this treatment can take up to 10 years to really find the right one for the person, It can be treated so well with therapy and medications that you might not even know the person you are talking to suffers from schizophrenia. Now, Peter began to show some of the more concerning signs of somebody who suffers from schizophrenia. It was not simple delusions or hallucinations that Peter was having. In fact, he started having some scary ones. I'm unsure if he was telling people about these or if he just started to act kind of weird. Then in 1987, when Peter was 18 and based off of those years, it sounds like he probably had early onset schizophrenia, he would unprovoked decide to pick up another resident that lived at the building he lived at, the apartment building or wherever, and he attempted to throw this man out of a window. 
We are unsure as to why this happened because Peter never really told anybody why he decided to try to throw this man out the window, but we can only guess that it had something to do with his delusions or his hallucinations. Now this window that Peter was trying to throw him out of was not on the ground floor. It was actually on the sixth floor. And if Peter would have been able to get him out of that window, he would have killed this guy, which was his intention. Of course, there was a brief altercation between the two of them because this man knew that he was trying to throw him out the window and he didn't want to get thrown out the window. This would in turn give Peter a pretty big gash across his head. And during this altercation, the police did end up being called. It does sound like the man that Peter was trying to throw out the window didn't really get injured, maybe, you know, some bruises, but Peter was the one who walked away with the worst injury. The frustrating thing is the police showed up, saw what Peter was attempting to do, and didn't do anything other than report it and leave the building. That should have been the first major red flag that was ignored. Then, only seven years later, in 1994, when Peter was probably around the age of 25, he would admit to murdering a 21-year-old woman. Now, I saw a little bit of conflicting evidence here. I saw in some places that the murderer was never found, and I saw in others, I guess it made it sound like in others, that they knew it was Peter in the first place. Either way, he was admitting to this murder of a 21-year-old woman who was beaten to death a year prior in 1993 with a hammer. As I said, some sources say it like the murderer was never found and this was shocking when Peter came up and said it was him. Others said that they knew it was Peter, but they didn't do anything about it. Now, Peter was admitting to it though. He claimed that a week before the murder, he would get caught shoplifting and would promptly be kicked out. This would cause him to be angry with the person who caught him, and he would wait until a week later when they were working to go back to, you know, have his revenge. Unfortunately, though, the person that Peter would end up murdering was not the person who caught him and kicked him out. It was the daughter of the person who owned the shop and kicked him out. He had murdered her daughter as revenge. And he had murdered this poor 21-year-old woman in front of her younger brother. This little piece of evidence leads me to believe that they did know it was Peter. But as I said, I am unsure if it, they knew it was Peter or if it was an unsolved mystery until Peter came forwards. Then Peter just left. He left her dead body there with her now scarred brother, and he would head home. For some reason or another, Peter would attempt to kill himself that night, which of course didn't work because he lived another day. When he would admit this, I did see that they sounded a little skeptical, and I think that leans more towards the they didn't know who killed this woman. Either way, whether they knew it was Peter or they were skeptical, they would send him to a secure hospital to decide if he was sane or not. A lot of the sources will state these as hospitals or, you know, those are kind of the nice ways to put it. They basically sent him to a mental ward to get looked at. 
While he was there, though, the staff felt like he wasn't mentally stable, at least not at first. But as they gave him therapy and medication, he started to progress pretty good. He was progressing socially with them and with his anger, and they ended up saying he was okay to leave and they would let him go. When they released him, they released him under the pretense that he was going to see a psychiatrist and keep his medications up. It did seem like for a while Peter did do this, but I do think, especially with what does end up happening, that Peter never really took the medications that they were giving him, and he let himself fall back into the schizophrenia. After a couple more instances, his psychiatrist decided that he wasn't doing as well as they thought he was, and that they needed to move him to another mental ward, another mental home, to get looked at again. I don't think Peter was consistently taking his medications, and that was probably what was going on. Now, this mental home, though, was different than the others. This was one that kind of let him come and go as he pleased, but he did sleep there and basically live there. They did this because they felt like he wasn't all the way there, but he was there enough that he wouldn't be a danger coming in and out, and that it might help him a little more. This freedom, though, did not last long because some altercations would come out that claimed that he had sexually assaulted a 16-year-old girl when he was out and about. Because of Peter's past, they would remove him from the home and put him in a different mental home so he could be forced to get the help that he needed and keep him safely away from others if he was still hurting others. Now, if you haven't had anybody spend any time in a mental ward, you might not know that they can't hold a person for super long against their will. If it's a child in a mental ward, it's a different story because a parent can agree to keep them there longer and they can pay for you know their stay. An adult, on the other hand, technically has free will and cannot be held unless deemed completely mentally unstable for a super long period of time. So after only a month of spending time in this secured mental ward, he would be released again. Just like every other time he was being forced to get help, he seemed like he was doing better socially and mentally, and it was honestly probably because he was under constant watch and was consistently taking his medication. But when he left, nothing was in place to help him and to make sure that he continued to take his medication. There's a couple possibilities in my head. Once he was released, he decided he liked the way the schizophrenia thoughts hit him. And therefore, he stopped taking the medication because he didn't like the way it made him feel. Or, he was faking that his mental health was getting better. He was mimicking and he was masking just to get out of the mental ward. And that the medication really wasn't helping at all. It's possible the medication was incorrect. And while he was out, Peter would go on to murder one of his friends on February 17th, 2004. The day he murdered him, he would be in this friend's home. This friend's name was Brian, and I am unsure as to why he was in Brian's apartment that night. But something would happen there, and we're not sure what. 
We don't know if anything provoked Peter or if he unprovokedly attacked Brian as he had done before to the man that he tried to throw out the window. During this entire process, for some reason or another, one of Brian's other female friends would let herself into the apartment. When she walked in, she spotted Peter immediately. He was standing there with no shirt on holding a knife, covered in blood. Peter told her that Brian was dead, and she spotted the dead, naked body of Brian in the other room that had no arms. Somehow, whether Peter was busy and let her go or she snuck out, she was able to leave and contact the police while Peter was busy with Brian's body. The police would let themselves into Brian's apartment and they discovered basically the same thing. Peter was standing in the hallway when they swung the apartment door open and their eyes met with him. He was standing there just as that female friend had said, covered in blood, staring at them. His body was blocking the living room, but not enough that they couldn't see what was happening. They saw the dismembered body parts of his friend Brian, and upon further investigation, they found that these body parts were definitely his friend's Brian's and cut up, and horrifyingly enough, they discovered the brains of Brian sitting in a frying pan, still warm and covered in butter. Peter had eaten the brains of his friend. And when asked about this, he would tell the authorities that he did fry the brain in butter and he did eat it. And it was quote unquote, really nice. Peter was promptly arrested, and they would deem him mentally unstable. And of course, at this point, he would be sent off to another mental institution, where he would stay at during the trial. When this trial started, Peter easily pled guilty. He had no guilt. He was proud of it, almost. And they would bring up the first murder that he also pled guilty to, but nobody really took him seriously. And now, looking back, they were pretty sure Peter was being honest and that he had beaten that woman to death. Then, during the trial, he would also inform the jury and the authorities that if he had not been interrupted and arrested, he would have eaten all of the flesh on his friend's body not just his brain, that he craved the flesh and was excited to eat it. At the end of the trial, the judge concluded that in all of his mental health stays, when they had claimed he was doing better, he had just not been properly watched and judged, and they were just kind of letting him go. Or everybody would have seen the warning flags and would have seen that Peter was not really getting any better. He was found guilty on two counts of manslaughter, but on the grounds of diminished responsibility, meaning that he wasn't mentally stable enough to take the blame for it. Now that doesn't mean that Peter got off and was just let go, because at the end of the trial, the judge looked Peter in the eye and said, 
You killed these last two occasions because it gave you a thrill. A feeling of power when you ate flesh. Once she was done lecturing him, she sentenced him to life in prison. They did have to give him a minimum sentence of 15 years, which means in 15 years he could be released again to the public. But this is very unlikely to happen because of his mental state and the fact that he had now murdered two people and attempted to fully eat one of them, but managed to eat some of the person. He was dangerous. Now, because he was found on the grounds of diminished responsibility and he was not mentally stable, they did not send him to a normal prison. They sent him to Broadmoor Hospital, a high-security mental institution that he will most likely get treatment for for the rest of his life. Now, this isn't the end story of Peter, though. Because during his stay in this institution, he would start to watch another man. Now, here's why I think Peter was probably playing a part. He was probably pretending like he was fine and that the medication was working, when in reality it wasn't doing anything because it was either the wrong medication or the wrong dose. Because Peter started to watch this man. He didn't like this man at all. And on April 25th, 2004, he would attack this man. This man's name was Richard Ludwell, and he attacked him in the dining room when they were alone. The attack started off simple, with strangulation. Peter was using a cord from his pants to wrap around the neck of Richard and bring him to the ground as he began to choke. Once they were on the ground, Peter would move on from strangulation and would begin to smash Richard's head into the ground repeatedly over and over and over again. Peter intended on murdering Richard, but during the attack, he would get tired and just stop. Peter would get up, leaving Richard, who was still alive on the floor, bleeding. A nurse, of course, discovered Richard on the ground and would rush him to the hospital. Unfortunately, though, Richard would die of the injuries that Peter had given him. And Peter would have successfully killed a third person. When he would be questioned about this, they would ask him why he did it as they always ask people who murder other people. And Peter would admit that he had his eyes on Richard for a while. He did not like Richard. And he told them that he knew he didn't have much time to kill Richard before somebody would walk in and stop him. I want you to remember that sentence. I'm going to come back to it. Because he knew of this, Peter knew he had to move fast. He also told them if he had more time and more space, possibly even if he was alone in his own home, he would have not only finished murdering Richard instead of leaving him there alive, but he would have also eaten him because he craved the flesh. 
They did try him for this murder as well, but just like the last one, they found him mentally unstable and not mentally responsible. On top of that, the staff at this mental institution got in huge amounts of trouble because the dining room was not being adequately observed and they should have been able to stop the murder before it happened. Now, remember that sentence I just barely told you. He knew that he wouldn't have a lot of time to kill Richard, and he knew he needed to kill him fast. To me, that doesn't feel like a mentally unstable sentence. That, you guys, is premeditation. He had been planning the murder of Richard for a long time. He didn't like Richard. He was waiting for his opportunity to murder Richard. Premeditated murder is not something somebody who is mentally unstable most of the time is capable of. A lot of the mentally unstable people who get found on diminished responsibility, who are not necessarily guilty because they are basically insane, lack the premeditation. Most of the time, it's kill as they go, kill on the spot. It's, I saw that girl and I craved flesh, so I killed her. Or, they told me to kill her and eat her flesh. It's never premeditated enough to know You don't have a lot of time, and you've got to kill him. Now, I'm not saying that Peter wasn't insane. I'm not saying that he doesn't possibly have schizophrenia. But it feels like, to me, all of the murders were premeditated. They were planned. The first woman that he beat to death with a hammer, he didn't eat her. But he came back a week later with revenge. He planned that murder for a week. Who's to say the friend that he went off and murdered, Brian, was not also planned? And that he knew he was going to go that day at the apartment, murder him, and eat him. And he was interrupted. Because then the murder in the mental institution of Richard was also planned and he knew he didn't have enough time. I know a lot of people who murder will plead insanity, that it wasn't their fault and they were mentally unstable in hopes of not getting sent to prison. Is it possible that Peter was one of those people who succeeded? That peckish Peter isn't clinically insane. Maybe he suffers from schizophrenia, but that he maybe is just a serial killer who managed to put up a facade and trick all of us. So instead of being in prison for the rest of his life, he's being treated a little bit better in a mental institution. There may be false or misleading information throughout this podcast. All facts have been researched to the best of my abilities, but accidents do happen. 
If this is a story you are interested in knowing more about, I highly recommend doing your own research. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.